and welcome to the Two Heads podcast. Thank you very much for joining us once again. My name's Jonathan Rice, and I am joined, as always, by Sarah Shiras. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Jonathan. And delighted to welcome one of our favourite guests, friend of the show, lovely to have you with us, Laura McInerney, the founder of TeacherTap, former editor of Schools Week. Hello, Laura. Hello, lovely to be back. It's lovely to see you, Laura. Thanks for coming. Great to have you with us. What we're going to do today is we're going to have a look back at 2023, the big stories that we've talked about through the year in the company of Laura and draw on some of her expertise in the world of education and politics. So, Laura and Sarah, we've had the same education secretary all year. We've had the same prime minister all the year. Surely there's nothing to talk about, is there? (laughs) If only, if only... We didn't say the quality of the Education Secretary or the Prime Minister, unfortunately. (laughs) So if we go back a year and look at what we were talking about in January, um, I think the biggest issue we were talking about at that point was the threat of strikes. Industrial action was hanging in the air. Big dispute over pay and I think probably more pertinently funding. So that's where we were at the start of the year. Seems a long way away now, doesn't it? Because suddenly, middle of summer, it was resolved. But can you just just take us back to where we were a year ago, Laura? Yeah, so I think the thing that happened is obviously there was a huge amount of inflation across the country. And then teachers were offered a far below uh, inflation pay rise, plus this kind of bonus that was a one-off payment. And I think in the eyes of the education secretary at that time, she just secured a £2 billion addition to the school funds, which she got through the Treasury in last year's November budget. I think she was feeling pretty flash. She thought this bonus sounded super generous. And actually what happened was I even remember seeing the pay deal come in on Twitter and it felt like a gut punch. It really did. And it felt like that, that, that bonus was almost buying people off. And also it didn't seem to be enough given the amount of inflation and the amount that Wales and Scotland were getting. That's the other thing to remember. So suddenly teachers were like, not only is this not enough compared to Wales and Scotland, but if you look historically, our pay has dropped enormously. You can look at different figures. I think the IFS came to something more around the mid-teen range, whereas the unions were going for the early 20s, depending on how you cut it. But in either case, these very small pay deals weren't going to be getting towards it. And so that's why I think strike action was on the cards. Certainly from TeachTap, when we were surveying it, the biggest issue was that they did not teachers did not feel it was going to be fully funded, even when they were given the more generous deal. And so that was also part of the contention. It seems like Jonathan said seems a long time ago now, but actually things started getting really difficult on the school front in the summer for a number of reasons. As the strikes were racking up and coming in pairs, and for some of the staff they found that really hard because that's a lot of pay to lose. And I think we, you know one of the narratives behind this is just that we've lost is that staff are losing quite a lot of money through that process, and then there started to be quite a lot great as to. You know, everyone went out on the first day from the unions and then some people coming to work and some people weren't and school leaders didn't know whether to open or not. And then parents were pushing back and saying, well, how can you unauthorise my holiday when you can take off whatever days you like? And it was getting very tricky. And I was surprised how relieved I was when it was over, if that makes sense. I was surprised how much that took the pressure off returning to school in September. But we also have to sort of say it, it did sort of work, didn't it? Because we did get more out of the system than we thought we, you know, we were offered in the beginning. Um, but, it, you know, I've been a teacher for a long time and a head teacher for a long time. And it's the biggest industrial action we've had. And yet now in December, I've almost forgotten that 
that isn't the biggest issue on my list, you know, by a long, long way, which seems quite an incredible reflection. It did work in the sense that uh, we were able to hold the government's feet to the fire over the STRB's recommendation for September, but we didn't get anything else in advance of that, did we? And what the unions were asking originally, correct me if I'm wrong, Laura, I think, was that there would be an extra payment for the previous year, wasn't it? That's what we were after originally, wasn't it? I don't remember if that was what the unions wanted or not. I think, to be honest, they held very firmly to a line around inflation, and they just said they wanted it to be an inflation-based in fact, often they pushed even further than that and said they wanted pay restoration back to the 2010 amounts. Mm. I think everybody knew we weren't going to get pay restoration up around the kind of 15 to 20% range, but also getting something around that kind of 3 and 4% range wasn't going to work. And that's why in the end, I mean, it's sort of funny because this all went away because the education secretary threatened, you know, well, we'll go to the STRB and they'll decide. And then the STRB were more generous than she was, not as generous as the unions wanted. It all sort of made everybody seem fine. And being honest, I think there was an agreement in the way that it was then presented back to everybody that made it look fully funded. In truth, I don't think it was any more fully funded, really, than it was fully funded the first time around. But it was a way of making everybody feel good. The teachers who didn't want to strike anymore didn't need to strike. Heads could stop worrying about whether or not they could open their schools in September. Everybody had more money than they could have done. And the education secretary could say, oh, I stopped the strike. So it's a good example, actually, of how conflicts work out and in the end those kind of win-wins are what you want to aim towards and I do think as we mentioned that it was about pay but it was about the funding of that pay but there was an awful lot of other talk there about accountability measures and recruitment and retention and it was almost a a way of you know highlighting a whole load of issues in school potentially that maybe the you know the bigger wide world didn't know about and, and certainly the teachers that I spoke to those issues are very live for them and particularly around workloads and you know we've seen it again with the recruitment figures which are shocking and scary and are going to be an ongoing you know issue but all of those things came together in the, in those strikes that as if to say we haven't you know this voice hasn't been heard very loudly and this is our way of making it heard and I hope some of that doesn't go away I don't I'm not necessarily I want any more strikes but I just think, you know, those the moderate voices, the unions working together, people trying to not, you know, look like um, real lefty teachers, as that's what a lot of people would think. But actually some very reasonable people making some very reasonable points mm. about a job that can be very difficult to do at times. Um, and just wanting to, you know, most people really want to do their job. They're passionate about it and actually just want a way of saying that I'm on these bits, make it tough. And can we do something about them, please? We did, I felt, well, certainly here, we got broad support from the public. Generally, our parents were quite supportive of what the teachers were doing. We did obviously get the thing you described, Sarah, where people who want to go on holiday complain that we haven't been able to authorise it because, you know, even though we'd had days of, of strikes ourselves. So, issue over? Where do you see this going as we go into 24? Would you say that's issue over or is this just something that's hanging around underneath the surface and we're going to be looking at again during the year to come? Well, we've already got a situation brewing around pay for next year, which is that the Education Secretary had promised she would be submitting the evidence that um, would say what the government felt the SDRB ought to give before Christmas this year so that they could get a bit of a jump on it. Because in years past, it's been getting later and later and later. Many heads are having to set their budgets and then the government tells them how much money they'll have and everyone has to go back and scramble. And to be honest, I think that is just it's such an unsustainable and problematic situation we've got into. And so 
the education secretary had promised that she would have this information out early. She so far hasn't. That tells me that's either because they don't know, they want to be politically difficult. And in a year of an election next year, sometimes the Conservative Party gets it into their heads that having fights with unions puts them on the side of a broader public of the consumers. And there are 12 million parents of school children and there are 500,000 teachers. So they sort of want to go with the parents. What you have to look at is like to what extent actually do parents end up thinking, wow, we love it when teachers are out on strikes. Well done, government. That's exactly what we wanted. And I think they might make the wrong call. So wouldn't surprise me if we find ourselves in at least a tetchy public conflict where strikes might happen again just because the education secretary thinks it's convenient. And I don't think some of those other issues that were tied into it have gone away either, have they? So um, budgets are looking dreadful. And I know we, we are a bit pessimistic the way we budget into the future because we put in possible pay rises but we don't put in possible income increases because that's just the way we have to try and manage it but things are looking much much worse and there's been a lot of chat on on twitter about future budgets and budgets being set you know in a way that school leaders have never done before Um, and then as I said the recruitment retention crisis even though that probably is going to really hit further down the line it says a lot about a profession that people don't want to join it doesn't it you know and it says a lot about how we support and manage new teachers that people don't want to join it and I said on this podcast before that um, I was listening to someone talk who said he was working with a bunch of new teachers and that he said did anybody try and persuade you not to become a teacher and every single one of and put their hand up and then he said were those people teachers and every single one of them put their hand up so the biggest recruitment and retention crisis we have is us at the moment you know if we're not enjoying what we do if we're feeling that it's not a profession that we would join if we started again and that's a question which I think you've asked as well Laura isn't it that would you do be a teacher if you started again and and it's a very sad and depressing picture uh, for a profession that really if it isn't full of joy you know the young people and the children are the people who are getting sad people standing in front of them and that's not going to make a successful either so I think some of those fringe issues to the issue of pay really haven't gone away and if anything are feeling more acute going into the new year than they were last year. I'm going to push back though a little bit because I'm going to invoke what I think the government would say to some of what you've just said which is first of all they would say you know one of the reasons why we might be seeing much worse recruitment this year is because of the strikes, is because of the way that the profession is complaining publicly, is making out like everything is terrible, and therefore, do we become our own worst enemies? I think that's a slightly nebulous argument, because I think you can't ask people to just sit there and watch everything go into decline forever. That isn't going to help either. So I think the profession has been pushed into a difficult position on that one. But that's what they'll say. The second thing is around budgets. One of the challenges is that actually secondary schools, by and large, not saying they're floating in cash, but by and large, they're doing much better or okay because of the pupil numbers starting to come through. Whereas because primary schools have got numbers absolutely reducing very, very quickly and have always had more difficulties, I think, with the budget because there's less to play with. What we're starting to see play out is almost a two tier system in which secondary schools are quite quiet and aren't saying anything because lots of them are doing pretty okay and primaries are on their knees because the government has set up the funding in the way that they have though they've got very few levers now to try and get things into the right position and that's one of their issues it was why the full funding problem came about because when they put extra cash into the system to cover wages for example they don't really have any control over where it goes so they sort of blame the schools and say the schools aren't putting it into the right places but the schools also don't necessarily have control over where it goes you happen to be a secondary academy trust and have got loads of money in your reserve you happen to just be the ones who are accumulating all of this and if you are 
the single small primary school in a local authority that's utterly strapped. You didn't have any control over that either. And I don't know how we're going to get ourselves out of that position. But over the next few years, as pupil numbers continue to decline, particularly in the primary sector, there is going to have to be something done about funding more generally. Otherwise, we are going to have to see lots of primary schools closed. And I don't think people want that. But it's also interesting because you mentioned the pupil numbers there. Um, obviously, every year we have a consultation, you know, around schools about 18 months times, um, PANS, admission numbers. And the ones at the moment in our local community are slashing the numbers in, in all the schools. And mm-hmm. some of the schools are willing to go with that because they would rather have a smaller fixed number that gives them one form entry than they would have a number somewhere between 30 and 60. That means they've got to run two small classes, which they can't afford. And so potentially there is actually, because it's in the hands of the academy trust and in the hands of the governors we could end up with not enough places in some areas because everybody's going for the the smaller option because it's safe so if you think you might get i don't know 38 children you're better off with a pan of 30 because then you can have a full class that is functioning effective from a financial point of view and so how that you know moves around another thing i was going to say was that i do i'm beginning to feel that the the attitude of the government towards primary does feel different from secondary and the wonderful minimum service level which obviously comes into potential future in strikes and the idea that primary schools under option two would just all have to remain open i think was a very interesting you know expression that we are childcare as well as education aren't we we are there to facilitate families to be able to work and to be able to carry on with their lives and it just does concern me if there was any future thought that primary status and as professions professionals would be different from that of our secondary colleagues. I think one of the reasons they did that with primary by the way is there's not many places around the world that have these kind of minimum service levels but one that does and is surprising given their union culture is France and France does require during strikes that primary schools stay open however Really, it's up to the local authority to staff that. It's not that the schools just have to keep their teachers in. It's that the local authority has to figure out who they're going to ship in or how they're going to do it. And so, yes, the professional teachers leave and they can bring in people to do childcare. And it is seen as slightly different. And that is something that's got missed by the government. And I think they're, again, chancing their arm because they can point to France and say their primary stay open. Why don't ours? And we have to shout back and say it's, it's a very different situation. Can I ask you, Laurie, just your view on on school funding and places? You talked about schools closing there. Some mats are starting to develop their own funding formula, aren't they, where they'll draw all the money that they're getting into the centre and then redistribute it according to their own their own formula. Um, and mats have generally been a protective factor up till now, haven't they? Again, schools closing at the same time. Do you, is that the way this is going to happen, or do you see mats wanting to keep schools open at all costs? I think that most mats will want to guard against the reputational risks that come with school closures. Most school closures are incredibly emotive, even ones that have been, you know, not doing well for many, many years, have very few people choosing them for their first choice. They still tend to be things that people don't want to close. Also because people don't know what will be put there. So if you live across the school, you chose to live across from a school, you don't necessarily want a new development of flats or a doctor's or whatever else building there. And so that's another reason why people get very into keeping schools. For a multi-academy trust, 
they don't want to have a reputation of being the people who came in five years ago, took over your school, and now they're going to close it down and do whatever dreadful thing it is with the land. So it may be in their interest to cross-subsidise. And if they have secondary schools, particularly ones that are quite large, they could have good enough reserves that they're able to do that for a period of time. And that's when we get into trouble. Because if what you have is another school down the road that is actually doing quite well, should be staying open, but simply isn't able to get enough kids in because there is a small group that gets siphoned off into this school that otherwise would have been closed in the past by the local authority. Um, that's when we're going to get into trouble because you're going to have two schools that need subsidising, one which can be and one which will be in a much more difficult position. So, Laura, you told us in the summer that you, you know, you're being the czar of school closures and being the person who could <laughs> oversee the system. But that's the issue we've got, isn't it? That the fractured system means there isn't anybody taking a sensible map that says there are the children, there are the schools, there's a successful school, there's a you know school with a really a well-established staff team. Um, and actually, like I say, I think things could get quite messy if people default to a safe number. As a school leader, I completely see why you would do that. There could actually be, you know, the falling roles could actually lead to there not being enough places it, until we get to the real bottom of it, if that makes sense. But how do you yeah. think that's going to pan out? Because it seems to be happening very, very quickly. I mean, we're talking September 25, that within an area around us, every single school's plan is either going down by 15 or down by 30. That's really fast. Yes. And by the, all the time, all the children who are in who are currently alive, it goes down even further. So, it, yes, it's going to happen quickly. I think there are a range of options that could that could work here. The biggest issue is actually that we have a mixed system. I think if everybody was in an academy, then you could make the argument if you're the government, well, everybody's got the tools to kind of manage their own finances and funding. You could sort of give the statutory obligation to the local authority who would have to tell people this is the plans that we have to have and between you, you have to figure it out. But because we don't have that, and we have half on one system and half on the other, local authorities sort of have powers but don't in some cases. That's why it's going to get messy. And I know Labour don't particularly have any appetite for dealing with this, but somewhere throughout, if they get in next year, which they should do based on all of the polls, I think they're going to have to figure out who is in charge of making these decisions, who is the ultimate arbiter, and probably come up with some processes which are not just and that asks the education secretary to sign off on it, or aren't just the local authority only being able to manage their maintain schools. So those were the big issues that we were looking at at the start of the year, and I think as we've probably established, um, they're still big issues now. <laughs> and they will, they will continue to be as we go into 2024. Let's move on to what I think has undoubtedly been the biggest and most sobering story of 2023 and one that is certainly still very current as we reach the end of the year now, which was that in March we learned the terrible news that Ruth Perry had taken her own life after an Ofsted inspection at her school. That had actually happened in January, but I think I'm right in saying that we that we heard about that in March it's difficult to know where to start with this, isn't it? Especially given everything that's happened since then and the reaction of the profession. Sarah, do you want to just, just start us off with what's happened in the meantime, what's happened in the reaction since the inquest? Yeah, we've talked a lot about this and having pivotal moments and moments that could change things and also people's responses. So even behaviours during the inquiry and some of the things that Offset have said during and after. Uh, then we've had the 
almost bizarre behaviour over the last week where initially, no, we're going to plough on to, and then expect right through to the 22nd of December. Or no, we'll stop on the 15th now. And if you just say no, will be no. Uh, then the training this week that uh, inspectors were meant to have, which felt like a very um, rushed way of, of trying to plug a gap, which they said didn't exist, but then suddenly it did exist and it needed plugging in a very um, minimalistic fashion. I suppose I... I hope, as we said last week, that this is a pivotal moment, that maybe as we move into a new year, we move towards an election, uh, we've got a new um, HMCI coming in. So all of those things, even if they're used as the reason for change, actually there is something learned from this. And that's the bit that I worry, that there is just not going to be enough learning. Um, you know, being school leaders is really tough and we're going to struggle again around recruitment and retention, particularly, as we've already mentioned, their negative publicity doesn't attract people to do things. And this couldn't be any more as an, you know, of a, a negative publicity for the job. But I think the fact that um, the unions have come out and said things together, I think the head teachers around table has led on this and they've been, you know, they were calling for pauses and offset way before we even went into lockdown. Um, I, we've read the Beyond Offset report, which matches quite a lot with what other people are saying. Let's have a different method of doing things. But I just can't see that all being in place for when school goes back on the 4th of January. You know, I, I assume, Laura, you may know much better than us, but I assume we will just carry on the same. And I don't know where that, you know, stands for school leaders and for the credibility of this system that we have at the moment. Well, I, I guess it's a bit like for uh, Martin Oliver, who's coming in as the new chief inspector, it's a bit like being the head teacher coming in on your first day in a January of the middle of an academic year when a, a big scandal, if you like, has just happened in the school the previous year. I think it is very difficult to expect things to change super rapidly. But also, I wish there'd been a slightly different narrative that Ofsted had helped develop over the year that could have and it aided people to feel OK about that. So just to give my view on this whole thing, um, I haven't spoken about it publicly. I don't think at all this might be my first time. And it's mainly because there's very strict guidance for journalists when you're reporting on anyone who's taken their own life for very good reasons. One is that often when we get to an inquest, there are other things that the family didn't know which come to the fore. And you don't want to be in a position where we've gone down kind of one line and then it's very surprising and awkward and difficult. So I think waiting for the inquest before everybody made judgments was really important. The other group I've been aware of throughout this is there are a group of inspectors who, like many of us, obviously haven't done a perfect job on that day, but I've, I've been really aware of them and the fact that I don't think they went in to do their job badly. And all of us are at risk, I think, at any time of not always being as compassionate as we could be. And we would not want this to be the end of that circumstance. But I, I think the problem has been the reaction over the year, particularly from the inspectorate, has been one of almost queen-like, don't explain, don't complain, carry on, keep going. And so what the profession has had to do about its rightful concerns is keep turning up the volume. Because if someone isn't going to listen, people are going to shout louder. And I don't think we can get away from the fact that there are real issues. I, I'm, I'm sort of really upset about the fact that in February 2020, my Guardian column that month was on this very issue. And the, the final bit I put in was I said, lots of heads are asking for the idea that if it is a sort of safeguarding thing that could be redone, could there be a six month period before we publish in which they come back, they check it again, and then you could publish both reports. And that's the sort of thing now that we are looking at, which really, if there hadn't been a pandemic, maybe should have been looked at a long time ago. But it all got taken away in the wash. We all had other concerns, recruitment, pays and strikes and everything else. 
And it's such a shame, I think, that the volume had to get so loud that we had to get to this position before it could be listened to. And I, I wish that, in retrospect, I hope people in Ofsted think this as well, you know, had they said from the very beginning, we're listening, look, we're going to come out, we're going to listen to you. We're not going to be able to solve this overnight. We're going to take a bit of time. We're going to come up with a plan. We'll work with the sector to figure it out. I don't think people were expecting that training was going to happen two days after the inquest. What they are expecting is some kind of serious change in the long run that brings everybody with them. Otherwise, I think Martin is going to be in the position as head of Ofsted where they potentially lose the room. And if they do, in the end, this is all by consent. It's like policing. At the end of the day, all inspection is by consent, because if the profession really doesn't want to play the game, they will stop. And that will be it because everybody will withdraw their labour. They will stop wanting to be Ofsted inspectors and it will be game over. So I say every week on here, Laura, I don't understand why that isn't happening now, because it feels to me like that is how the profession feels right now. So is it just that those of us who think that I'm not in a position to withdraw my labour because I don't give it, I'm not an Ofsted inspector, but is it that people like who think like I do are in such a minority that that's not a mainstream opinion? Or is it the broad view of the profession? Are we nearly, have we nearly reached that tipping point? But there's a difference between... I've already got a job to do. I've been trained. I'm already planned to do these things and I'm in the inspection. I'm not probably going to throw up in the air that plan. Teachers largely are quite compliant people. We believe in rules and we do believe in rigour and standards and checking and assessing. Right. But what you will get, I think, is people saying when my term ends, I'm not doing it again. When a contract comes up for a school, I'm going to turn it down. I was thinking I was going to become an offset inspector and actually I won't. And if what you do is you start to lose your good people and you start to lose your capacity, even losing 20 percent of capacity starts to become a serious problem. So that's what I mean. Not that we're going to get everybody just downing tools or overnight, but that what you end up with a bit like what we're seeing in the teaching profession, frankly, is if enough people don't want to do it because we've not made it like something that they want to do and we're not paying them well enough, then in the end, we end up in a real problem. Ofsted will have the same issue. So one of the things that we asked last week, Lord, is um, the select committee has been listening. You're saying that it doesn't feel as if Ofsted has been listening and it feels as if there have been a lot of submissions to that select committee. They keep publishing them, you know, in, in batches, don't they, on the way through. What power does that have or none at all? And what could um, their timeframes mean around how Ofsted moves forward? And, and back to what happens on the 4th of January? Do they just start calling again and coming in in exactly the same model or will something more than that happen? I don't think they'll have any other choice on the 4th of January because these have to be negotiations with the education secretary. At the end of the day, they are Her Majesty's chief inspectorate that work on behalf of Parliament, the government, and of course, you know, as part of Parliament royalty, hence why they are who they are. So they don't necessarily have the powers to just stop doing that. Um, he may try. I don't know what his plan or his strategy will be, um, but it's not simple. It's a bit like as a head, you couldn't come in on the first day, even if it was the right thing to do and say we should close for a week. You would have to try and work with your governing board, your trustees, your community to get that right. So I, I don't know what it'll be like on the 4th of um, January, but the Education Select Committee, I hope their report, the reports people are writing, the evidence that's being provided. Um, I'm not sure the government are going to do anything much about it. There might be a bit of tinkering around the edges. But Labour have said all along that they want to reform Ofsted. When we did the big experiment where we got teachers to rank all of Labour's policies, other than mental health policies, Ofsted reform was the highest. I think they've got a lot of legitimacy now to go ahead and think about how we could do things differently. I don't think it's going to be radical or as radical as people want. But it may well be that the one word grades are looked at again. 
it may well be that the timings of these things are looked at again, this idea of republication and so on and so forth. And look, things like complaints have been going on for years. The complaints process is not okay. It's not been okay for years. That's needed to be worked on. Now is the time to work on it. I love your description of of Ofsted's attitude as queen-like. I think that is an absolute... (laughs) perfect description of their attitude towards us and everybody else slightly disdainful within that isn't it so then coming to the new academic year in september well just in the last week of august i think we suddenly found that there was a grave danger of some of our school ceilings falling down which was a little bit of a jolt to the system, wasn't it? Just when we were hoping for a, you know, to start with a nice assembly and everybody walking in quietly. <laughs> That's one way to get everyone quiet. <laughs> and of course, that issue, again, like the other issues that we've discussed that have dominated the year, that's really still going on, isn't it? Because there are there are children who are not in their classrooms in schools up and down the country still. And more schools are being discovered to have rack as we speak, I think, aren't they? I think that's still happening now. How are you guys getting on with it? Have you got have you got rack? No, our local authority actually was quite proactive and we had some people yeah. come out several years, two or three years ago now and inspected parts of the school. They did have to re-inspect other parts during this term, but in our entire yeah. local authority... There's, it, it just clearly wasn't a, a substance used, whereas obviously other local authorities building plans did you know, use it. But no, we're, we're OK. But for some people, this must have been the massive dominant issue. You know, all the other issues we talk about, for some mm. school leaders, this has just dominated every aspect of this term for them, hasn't it? And it, like Jonathan says, it doesn't appear to be going away. And maybe it's also masked the stories around new builds that have been completely inadequate, and some of which are having to be pull down you know that's sitting there underneath this which just adds to how little investment there has been and how little thought around the actual physical structure of what we do but don't worry we can sell off our playing fields and that will help us mend our buildings won't it so yeah and and it's not gone away for some schools it's just you know hung over them literally um we've got there's one school near us where they've just got a tent they've got a wedding tent that's now their school hall but that's the only one locally and but i know in some communities it's massive and and they can't see a way out of what they're in at the minute so where do we go with this one in 24 well, I think you're right. This is a this is a bigger issue that rattles on because it's not really about this specific type of concrete. Although I guess most of us became I had to become more of an expert in concrete than I ever imagined <laughs> I would in order to do a lot of explaining about this. But um, really, that is affecting a small number of schools in a very big way. So for those yeah. schools, it's massive. But for the majority of people, it isn't. However, what we discovered looking at all of the evidence on this is there's just a much bigger buildings issue. Right. So on TeachTap, we know that about 40 percent of schools, when it's raining, have a bucket somewhere in their school catching drips. We know that around 12 percent, one in 10 schools, has at least a classroom which is out of use because there is a maintenance problem, whether that's windows caving in, roofs caving in, you know, some kind of noxious gases getting out, like whatever's going on. We've got playgrounds that have got sinkholes and everything else. Why is this? Why in a modern, very rich country do you have the situation? Well, because, again, over the last 13 years, the way we've made decisions about who gets capital, how it moves around in the system, sort of asking people to get their begging bowls out and then making very weird, not always very transparent decisions means that you've ended up with huge inequalities, no clear system, no clear plan. Budgets are happening kind of year to year. People don't know how much money they're going to have. Now, I was with a school that was planning kind of million pound building 
at one point for its children with special needs. And then when the pay deals came in a couple of years ago and we all had to scramble to change everything in the July, that all had to be put on ice. And you just think this is ridiculous because a lot of work had already gone in to trying to plan that building and then we weren't able to go ahead with it. And so I just think this is about a bigger issue where especially for schools as well as other parts of the public sector, we have to start having multi-year settlements which are sensible, sane, and have the capital built into them in transparent ways. Otherwise, what you end up with is people in marquee halls <laughs> instead of being in schools. Um, and these kind of these kind of things will happen. Final thing as well is just to say, I think the government have been um, pushing a lot of academy trusts to spend their reserves, especially those secondaries I talked about. And they say, you know, there's serious issues um, in the world, that's what the reserves are for. So you should be spending it on your extra heating, your extra everything else. And then, of course, when RAC happens, the government is again saying, oh, well, this is what you should be spending your reserves on. You can't have it both ways. If you ask people to have reserves because you're not going to bail them out when there's building issues. You can't also be asking them to use their reserves to pay their heating bills and pay their pay. Um, we've got to have better plans than this. So I'm kind of angry about RAC, to be honest. That's the one that I think has really, really naffed me off this year. As an optic for the government, do you think it looks like, you know, do you think that I suppose the broader voting public are going to think, um, well, we're clearly underinvesting in our schools. That fits in with our view of public services generally, which seems to be grinding to a halt. Or are, do you think the general voting public are happy with, you know, like not, inv not investing in schools on the level that we would like them to, you know, people who are retired, people who don't have children, you know, would they rather just pay less tax and, you know, have us carry on as we are? I think this captures the imagination of the public for exactly the reason why it naffs me off. The idea that in a wealthy country you have children sitting in mouldy kind of classrooms with the ceilings falling on their head is a symbol of lots of other forms of decline but we can kind of cut away at the edges you know used to have a teaching assistant now we don't have it we used to have expensive glue sticks now we don't have it we used to have bigger lunch portions now they're smaller everybody will kind of cope with that and adjust but when the buildings are actually falling in and we can't be in there anymore it kind of says to people exactly the situation that we are in and the other thing that's great about it is from a newspaper perspective you can get images the headlines are very easy. It's a concrete, to, to use the pun there, a concrete term that people can understand. <laughs> and so in some ways, I'm glad that RAC happened because I think it could bring into the public consciousness the bigger, broader issues that ultimately we are no longer given the money to provide your children with an education that is the same quality as it was 10 years ago. So what would you like us to cut? That is the situation we are in. So that. The ones that I've actually heard head teachers talk about is not just looking when it's raining or not, but looking which direction the wind is coming from so they know which buckets they need to put out on that day, because that's the level of you know problem in their school. And then we've got another one where they couldn't check for rack because the asbestos was in the way. So therefore, yeah. they had to be deemed to have rack, even though they weren't sure if they did or not, because the asbestos, you know, those two things just sum it up, really, don't they? Um, but yeah, and I, I, I think what listening here whatever happens in an election is not going to be able to solve what we're talking about very easily because it's enormous, isn't it? It's absolutely enormous. And it's about underinvestment over a long period of time. Could 
is that going to be something that can be sorted out? And I know previously when we changed government years ago, when I was first a head teacher, that's when we first got capital money that came into schools and we had money that was ring fenced for capital. And it used to be quite a significant amount of money and it meant we could plan capital projects over a few years. That money is diminished and we can move it into revenue if we need to. And, and things are cost more. We used to buy a classroom of windows pre-pandemic and it cost us about three or four thousand pounds a classroom of windows is now eight thousand pounds so trying to get the windows replaced in our classrooms from the the grotty old metal 1950s ones it is really really tricky it's great for ventilation not so great when it's really cold outside so yeah where do you, where do you see this one going if we do have a different government during next year how high up their priorities will it be and how much money will they have to do anything about it i remain optimistic if only because I think I remember 1996 and it did not feel good. Like it did not feel good if people remember 1996 to have people dying in hospital corridors at the time to be in schools that were also falling apart and um, didn't have good standards and, and weren't doing very well and had terrible resources. And I know that when Labour came in, they were able to get on the back of some economic waves that we can't necessarily uh, expect this time. But also, Gordon Brown as Chancellor made a bunch of creative financial decisions, some of which haven't worked in the long run. PFI is catching up with us all. But it did unlock a set of funding at the time that enabled school buildings to go ahead. And I just think that we have to believe that governments can look at these problems and make different decisions. They're not going to solve everything. They might sort suit new problems for the future for us. But like, I just I just think we have to be able to make some better choices that will enable us to do some of these things a bit better than before. And actually, um, although Labour in 1996 also said they were going to stick to all the spending plans in the long run, they, they did things kind of differently. So we don't know at the moment if Labour is saying one thing, but they might do something else. You used the expression better than before. I took over as a head of a school where that was their motto, better than before. And we had this external trainer came in and he looked up at this motto on the wall and said, better than before. But what happens if it was really shit? And it was just like, yeah, just because it's better than before doesn't mean it's very good. Yeah. But hopefully better than before. Well, things better, can only not better, get better than before. Yeah, I stick to you. Things, things can, can only, only get, get better. better. What a yeah. yeah. What a, what a thought. One of the big things Gordon Brown did, of course, was um, introduce some stealth tax increases. And ultimately, that's what the British public's going to have to accept, isn't it? If you want a better health yeah. service and you want a better education system, you need to pay more tax. Anyway, all of the things we've talked about pale into significance, um, into insignificance, <laughs> and have been worth it, I believe, from the news that we have risen up the PISA rankings. We've risen up, maths particularly, a massive success story, we've risen up from 17th to 11th. Now, my football team is currently 11th in the league that they're in, and we're all moaning and groaning and saying we want the manager sacked because uh, we think we've got no chance of getting into the playoffs. So as a nation, are we happy with our mid-table mediocrity, or is this the good news story that Gillian Keegan says it is? I mean, this is a good example of Sarah saying why better than before isn't necessarily always actually better because our scores are not better. It's just that everybody else's scores were so palpably worse because of COVID that we've kind of risen up past them. Um, so everything can be worse and yet also better. Um, it's also a bit tricky, Pisa. Um, we do them later than other countries. So we do ours in the December, which is about six months later than some other countries. And I think when you're looking at the year 2022, with all of the COVID issues, I do think that is likely to be playing into some of the difference. But I'm happy to give them the win. Like, have we moved up? 
yeah, great. Does it suggest that in comparison to countries like Scotland and Wales, which seem to be doing worse, that things are like better in terms of our curriculum? Or in fact, what we can say is, is our curriculum closer to the PISA tests? Yes, it is. So, you know, well done them for those those small victories in an otherwise very difficult year. But I'm, I'm sure Sarah can talk a little bit about some of the other results from PISA, which are not as great. Like you say, Laura, if you, you know, you know what the tests are for and you're working towards them. But we've had other examples this week, haven't we, of the Lord's report about 1116 education and how limiting that is and for how many young people that doesn't work and doesn't function for and just for me the PISA table is saying like you say we talked to a test and we passed that test but at what expense at what cost to our young people like attendance at school young people's well-being how many young people know that the system isn't going to work for them a third of our young people not getting English and Maths GCSEs and therefore getting nothing in those subjects rather than getting something that is absolutely relevant for their future life and career and for their work and it just feels like a price not worth paying for me you know having a, a day to celebrate a PISA score actually let's look at our young people let's look at their experience of school let's look at what it feels to be them and they're not celebrating are they you know and so many of them are not attending not getting the support they want anxiety around failure and it is that word isn't it that you know they they, they we set a bar and uh, you know only two-thirds of young people get over that bar every single year um so yeah i pisa yes let's celebrate no not really you know and it's like schools even at primary level where sats is all you know they where there's sats tests we know of schools outstanding schools that the children do nothing but english and maths for the entire year six how is that a broad education? And we've said before that I do think we're moving to a place where a lot of our families are saying, you know, I'd rather they had a few notches less on a test score. I'd rather that GCSEs, A-levels weren't so all-consuming for the well-being of my child and for the broader enjoyment of life now. It's not all about planning for the future. Let's enjoy being kids. You know, let's enjoy being young people. And I find it such a limiting judgment that actually we have done stuff in our system and particularly in our secondary education that limits so many children's experiences but hey we've got up the table i think that question of like at what price is a big one for all of education at the moment it's probably my question of the year i keep thinking about the fact that at some point in the 1980s people went do you know what we shouldn't do anymore we shouldn't hit children with sticks like that's just not a thing actually it's quite effective at certain things but the price that we pay from that, we think it's too high. Actually, that was also what happened with grammar schools. At a certain point, ministers looked at, you know, there were benefits, but there was also a price that was being paid. And they felt that that price was too high of the self-esteem of a big group of children and their opportunities to pay for some children to have a better, a better academic education. And I think that's where we're at now. And that doesn't mean we have to criticise everything that's come before. It doesn't mean that anyone's done anything terrible. But I think like with Ofsted, with the pay deals, with PISA, with lots and lots of decisions. We just have to ask, have we perhaps pushed things beyond where we meant them to be? And is there a way now that we can decide that we're paying too high a price for whatever it might be? The accountability of schools is really important. But is it worth head teachers having six months of sleepless nights and being on medication to deal with their anxiety? Or is there something that we can do to reduce that price and make the value for money, if you like, better. And and I think that's something we're all going to have to get to grips with, especially as there's a new government coming in. What I don't want us to do, though, is spend a lot of time beating everybody up. I think that's the, that's some of the danger is we can all spend a long time now getting very angry that we're here. And 
we just kind of like that head teacher on the 4th of January, you have to sort of draw a line under what's happened and say, right, guys, we're going to move on from here together. Things can only get better, but maybe I don't know what your final motto was in that school if you changed it. But, you know, maybe there's a new motto for the future. Yeah, that things can only get better is just as de- depressing as better than before, isn't it? What if yeah. it was really shit? <laughs> well, on that almost optimistic note, <laughs> it seems a good time to draw the year to a close, doesn't it? That's the optimism with which we look forward to 2024. Laura, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your wisdom and insights and uh, expert knowledge of the system with us. It's been a great pleasure having you with us and very insightful. Thank you very much. Happy Christmas, Happy New Year, Happy all those things. Absolutely. Are you looking forward to the festive season? Is it one that you enjoy? I will enjoy it this year, I think. I think after several years of it being an absolutely (laughs) dreadful time, if you can't lean into Christmas and feel sparkly for a few days, you know, we really are at a loss. I'm going to lean in this year and finally try and enjoy Christmas. Excellent. Let's all get get sparkly, everybody. That's an excellent (laughs) sentiment on on which to finish. Thank you, Sarah. Also, if you've enjoyed the podcast, please do subscribe, tell your friends, tell your colleagues. You can find us on Apple, Amazon and Podbeam. Our producer is the wonderful Nigel Murphy. Thank you again for listening and goodbye. Take care, everyone.